0: Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation.
1: Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk.
0: And I'm Eric.
1: The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation.
0: We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all.
1: You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear It Cast
0: Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show.
1: And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us.
0: So let's get on to the show.
1: Welcome in. and We're back. It's another edition of Let's Hear It. You're here with Kirk and Eric. We're so glad you found us, so glad you're joining us today, and Mr. Brown is always so glad to see you and listen to what you've got in store for us today. It, uh, it's wonderful. How are you doing?
0: So glad to be seen, Mr. <laughs> Brown. I'm getting there. That's how I'm doing. Um,
1: <laughs> hey, I know you care about this podcast now because you're playing Hurt. You've showed up. <laughs> you showed up to play Hurt. You want to talk about it, or, or is that too much disclosure? But No, but, it's
0: Okay. I mentioned in the episode that I'm a little raspy of voice. Uh, I had a little bit of of surgery Mm. uh, in the middle of my face. Let's just leave it at that. But it is true that it was about 10 days post-op that I Uh, did this interview. uh. Uh,
1: But man, it's a good one. And, And you made it work. You made it happen. And we're thankful that you're able to do this today. So set it up because this is... Once again, a really special guest on Let's Hear It. And as always, a lot to talk about when we come
0: back. Let's see. So I spoke with Rinku Sen, who Mm -hmm. is the executive director of the Narrative Initiative. And full disclosure, and I mentioned that in our interview, I'm uh, on the advisory board of the Narrative Mm -hmm. Initiative. But that only is because I'm such a huge fan of Rinku's. Mm -hmm. and And her work has been really amazing on advancing narrative, particularly in the cause of racial justice. Mm. She is formerly executive director of Race Forward, which is another great organization promoting racial justice. She's one of the leaders of the Women's March and she's written two books. Rinku is a real leader in this work and I was just so delighted to have her on and to have this conversation with her.
1: Once again, so much generosity and so much to talk about in terms of what you cover with Rinku, her work, her background, her story and now what Rinku is bringing to the Narrative Initiative. So let's go to the interview, and then when we come back, we'll have a lot to talk about. So this is Rinku Sen on Let's Hear It.
0: Welcome to Let's Hear It. Folks, you're in for a treat. My guest today is Rinku Sen. She is an author, activist, political strategist, and she's the executive director of the Narrative Initiative. Rinku, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to see you. So good to see you too, Eric. And so okay, first we have to get the two two disclaimers out of the way. The first disclaimer is I sound like the love child of Kim Carnes and Rod Stewart today. I'm a little raspy. Not my normal uh energetic effervescent high-pitched uh twang. So there's that. So don't be put off by the by the raspiness. And the second is uh, I'm a member of the Advisory Board of the Narrative Initiative. So we you know, we have a previous existing relationship, but that means nothing about anything. It just means that I have this great opportunity to speak to you and to introduce you or to help you um, kind of go deeper with a lot of folks out there who are really interested in what you're up to. So thank you, Rinku. H- how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well.
2: Yeah, here in Central Texas.
0: Central Texas. Did I know you're in Central Texas? Where in Central Texas?
2: Um, I live not too far from downtown Austin, Uh. about 30 minutes north, and we've had a mild summer. We had a very rough winter, weirdly, historically hard, and the summer has been relatively cool, which is weird, but I'll take it right now, today.
0: And are you being overrun by all of those Californians who have decamped to Austin and environs, and Arizona. I mean, tex-
2: Texas has sunflowers now because of those Californians. <laughs> and um, but they brought sunflowers. I mean, they com- they changed the landscape and the actual environment. Yeah, they brought a lot of sunflowers with them, and there are there's actual media coverage of where did all the sunflowers come from.
0: You know why they brought sunflowers? Because you take sunflower seeds and you put them on avocado toast. <laughs> Uh, yeah <laughs> good good hipster avocado toast isn't isn't good enough without the sunflower seeds a little bit of paprika on top well i i would like to go way 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 back and learn more about how you how you came to this work but i also want to learn a little bit about your own journey because it it's it's an interesting one you came to the u.s at a very young age is that right
2: i did i came to the states when i was five and a half with my parents and my little sister Next year is the 50th anniversary of our arrival to these shores, and I'm thinking a lot about that, what it means to spend a half a century being an immigrant family um, in this particular country. And um, yeah, I learned to speak English in a two-room schoolhouse in a rural part of the Hudson River Valley, the Hudson Valley in New York, just uh, north of New York City. And grew up in northeastern suburbs in the early 70s, more working class suburbs. And by the time I was in high school, firmly middle class suburbs. And um, it wasn't until much later that I realized my family and in moving around from place to place as my father was trying to make a living. We often lived next to a Levittown in the (laughs) early to, to late 70s. And Levittowns, of course, were post-war suburbs built for GIs, returning GIs and their families. And they explicitly excluded Black families from moving in and Black GIs from, from owning those homes. Um, but by the early 70s, a family like mine, you know, professional Asian family chosen out of the 1965 immigration law, were allowed to move in. And I've spent a lot of the last 35 years since I really understood that history, thinking about my position um, as a brown-skinned immigrant person in the racial hierarchy of the United States. And I think that me trying to figure out how to be that person in a responsible, moral, and effective way has shaped my career pretty much.
0: Really interesting. So to be clear, you were born in India. Born
2: You're, in Calcutta. In Calcutta, mm-hmm.
0: And your mother's from Burma, is that right?
2: My mother was born in Burma, okay. but both of my parents are from, their families originated in West Bengal, oh, okay. um, What what's now West Bengal. So of Indian,
0: of, of Indian descent.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Well, anyway, obviously, as you just said, you grew up around a lot of people who didn't look like you and vice versa. Can you talk about what feeling that experience, how that has informed how you talk about race? Because so much of your work, your work with Race Forward, and now with the Narrative Initiative has been in obviously creating narratives, communicating about this experience of race here in America, but I think it probably also extends beyond that as well.
2: Yeah, I think the most... Maybe the most salient thing about my background is that I spent most of my childhood in some part as an outsider. <laughs> I just, I was literally an outsider who came in. And um, in many of the communities we lived in, I was the first person of my sort to come around. I mean, I'm not sure I can draw straight lines between how I grew up and things I experienced and the political strategies I've pursued, but I've spent my whole life, adult life, figuring out how to build multiracial community. <laughs> and I think actually my first real experience of that kind of community was at college. Um, you know, the my high school and junior high and elementary school communities were really pretty white with a smattering of other kinds of people, Black, Asian, tiny numbers of Latinos. But when I went to college, it was definitely absolutely predominantly white school. I went to Brown in the mid 80s, but there were organized communities with real numbers in them of Black students, Asian students, Latino students, and so college was my first real experience of being in a multiracial community and absolutely my first experience of trying to shape that community, you know, t- asserting some vision of that community and coming up with solutions and demands <laughs> on the institution that would, that would allow us to realize that vision of multiracial community, student academic learning community. Yeah. I don't know entirely why, except that I always wanted to be in a community like that. That's what I craved when I was a kid. And I got a lot of it through books and movies and stories, not because it wasn't available in my uh, material life. And I think that's a noble goal. I've continued to hold it for some decades. That's what brought me here.
0: That storytelling is something that you've carried on throughout your career. You went to Journalism School at Columbia. i have told they have a pretty decent journalism school. Uh, and yet, so journalism is a form of storytelling, but it's a very kind of, if you ask me, a fairly discreet form of storytelling. Uh-huh. What did you learn there and how did you take that into what I think is probably a far more expansive approach to narrative work?
2: Oh, I learned so many things in journalism school. When I I went after I had been working as an organizer and a trainer for about 15 years, that's what I'd been doing. And I decided to go to journalism school because I was happy with the things we had won and done, you know, in that 15 years. But I really wanted to be able to compete for people's love on the ideas and... I I came into organizing at the end of the Reagan administration. And so I did my organizing in the aftermath of the Reagan administration. And the Reagan administration set us up for everything we're experiencing now. It was, uh, in in my view, I went to J school because to journalism school, because I, I thought like we need to engage people on the ideas and we cannot knock on the door of every person in the country who might be open to ours. There has to have to find some other way. So I went there thinking very tactically, I wanted to know what did mainstream media think was a good story? Mm -hmm. Um, What constituted good sourcing? How, if you wanted to get the voices of the people I had been working with for 15 years into mainstream journalism, how would you do that? And I did learn a lot about that, but also I learned how to meet a deadline. I was not great at that before I went. How to stop writing in nonprofit speak. My writing just improved hugely and I really had to retrain myself because the the kinds of writing I had done mostly were academic writing when I was in college and then like proposal writing and promotional writing once I was working and those are the two kinds of writing that should least move out into the public sphere. (laughs) They, They should stay where they are. I had to learn how to translate my ideas into language that most people use. And within the bounds of the language that most people use, still finding the right word, not the wrong word, It's just you have to find the three-syllable word instead of the eight-syllable word. (laughs) Um, So my my writing improved a lot. I became the queen of cutting baggage words. I still do that for a lot of my friends. And I learned how to turn an idea or an issue into a story. That's what I really learned. And I, I knew I needed to learn that and that I didn't know how to do it. And I think I succeeded. My final project professor (laughs) advisor told me I had succeeded. And I learned some things about reporting and what constitutes rigor in reporting that have really, really, really helped me a lot as I then moved out, graduated from journalism school and moved back into movement contexts where I was Mixing up organizing, and we didn't call it narrative work, but narrative work, mixing those up to try to get some better results than what we had been able to capture till then.
0: Why do you think that so many of our colleagues in our field are either afraid or averse to storytelling? Because we see a lot of descriptive writing, we see a lot of explan- explanatory writing, and and I always feel. A lot of this work is missing the emotive, connective
2: storytelling.
0: Why do you think that is?
2: I have a funny story related to that, actually. My second book, The Accidental American, it's the origin story of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. It's about their first, uh, their flagship uh, organizing effort in New York City right after September 11th. And we've had sorrow on the show. Oh, right. So, you know. And um, that, that book alternates between chapters that are about Saru and Mamdu, the initial principal organizers, um, doing their thing in New York City, starting different campaigns. There's a whole trajectory about starting at the back of the house and moving toward the front of the house and just gathering up everybody, all the workers along the way. And then in between the chapters about them, it, are chapters about what was happening in the national policy debate around immigration policy at the same time. And I once spoke to a reader who said, Oh, I skipped all the narrative story chapters and I just read the, the three policy chapters and it just <laughs> broke my heart. I was like, I don't, why could you not keep that to yourself, maybe? Like, I don't think I needed to know that. Uh, because, of course, those those chapters about New York, I wrote after re- following them around for six years, going to all their meetings, you know, every one of their actions, interviewing their targets. Uh, you know, I tried to do a real cinema verite kind of reporting. So that, that to me illustrates exactly what you're talking about, that we, our colleagues, really want to rush to the the rational, and they feel like working their way through the story just takes too long. I think that's part of it. Things are urgent and it feels like if I just get to the point, this is the policy I want, this is the data that supports it, the rationality will lead everybody to the conclusion we want them to get to. But the problem is we haven't accounted for power in that formulation. The formulation where I like, I have a good idea, I can support it, it makes sense, it's going to work. I just have to go convince the people with power that this is what will solve the problems they have been elected or appointed to solve. That's just not the way power works and human power dynamics work. And to change power dynamics where, um, I don't think anybody needs to be empowered. I never use the word empower because we all have power inside of us, even if it's just the power of our bodies and our time and our the words that come out of our mouth. When you um, start asserting your power against someone else's power, that makes all sorts of irrational things happen. It makes um, people whose power is being challenged react with fear and defensiveness. It can make the people who are asserting their power not courageous. Chicken about <laughs> um, about how hard, how hard to go. And if you're in a nonprofit sector, a sector of organizations where the dominant theory of change is rational, then that's a pretty big mind shift for our colleagues to make, especially, if they've been successful with that theory of change as they have, as we have. You've participated in that, I've participated in that, and we did a lot of good, but it's not all the good we need to do and it's not all the good that's available for us to do. So um, I don't like to say we did it wrong or they're wrong. It's just their model, like any model, has its limitations, and we have some tools to try to mitigate those limitations and grow the field of possibilities. Well, that's a perfect segue. We're going
0: to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with Rinku Sen of the Narrative Initiative to talk about what you're doing to accomplish just that. So right back with Rinku Sen. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at Let'sHearItCast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. And welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest today is Rinku Sen of the Narrative Initiative. She's the executive director. And when we left off, we were, we were just talking about how do you use narrative to advance power, to take advantage of opportunities and to move our politics in a better direction, I think is a fair thing to say. Yeah.
2: How, how,
0: are, how are you doing that now? How are you, you've taken all this, so you've been a journalist, You've I know you've taught, you've written books, you've lived this really, rich and interesting set of experiences and it feels like you're rolling that up together into this new and wonderful thing. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think that the big advantage of using a narrative strategy is that it allows you to re-characterize your people and unify around the values that you want to push unify people around those values. I think that the reason it works (laughs) is because human beings want to do the right thing. Like that's something we really have going for us. They want to do the right thing. And if you can show them not just what the right thing is, but also the path to getting there, then um, they'll often do it. That That's what I learned as an organizer. If you can like take something people, first identify with them something people want and then show that there's an actual path to that thing. Maybe somebody else got got to it through a campaign or an organization or effort somewhere else. Maybe there's a law that says you're entitled to it, but you just haven't been getting it. That's the process. And so if you do good narrative work, which means that you're lifting up certain themes and ideas through all of the things that create a story. And the telling of a story is only one of the things that creates a story. Actions also create stories. So if you can get clear on the themes and ideas that you want to move forward, that have, that people have to hold in order to support your solutions. Um, Getting clear about that is the is like the first thing to do. Then the activities that you take on, the actual narrative shaping activities can involve everybody. Like you don't have to have people who are able to do direct actions. They can do, they can tweet in fact on, on the narrative you're trying to move you don't have to have, like, only policy wonks on your team. You can have artists because there's a part of your strategy for the artists to contribute to. So having, leaning into narrative, I think it grows our constituency. It provides roles for people to take because that's what a movement is. It's lots of people doing lots of things, right? And it allows you to to actually discuss the deepest values that people hold. I'll give you a couple of examples of how we're trying to do that at Narrative Initiative. One of the thank things... you for doing my job for me because uh, yeah. that was my <laughs> next question. Go for it. We see a ton of potential in social movement organizations. Like human beings are natural storytellers, therefore organizers and community leaders and advocates are also natural storytellers. And we all have that as our birthright as human beings. But sometimes we don't have all of the skills needed. Uh, So one thing we do is run a ghostwriting service for community leaders and organizers. It's a membership system. People join, groups join. And every month we work with them on at least one writing engagement a Twitter thread, an op-ed, or a letter to the editor. And nine months in, we've had at least one of each of those kinds of writing published. We're finding that just because we are there holding somebody's hand as they figure out um, how to communicate about the work that their group is doing, because we're asking them questions, they start to understand, oh, these are the questions you ask every single time. Oh, Megan's asking me this question for the third month in a row. That must mean I should always think about that question. We're asking who are the audiences you're trying to reach? Um, What are the what are the outlets that those audiences are going to? That in, Those two questions immediately surface conflicts in the strategy <laughs> because people will say, we're trying to reach people like us, people in our constituency. We want them to join the cause. We want them to sign a petition, whatever. Well, where do you want to be published? We want to be published in the Washington Post. Well, where are your people? They're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> Are they reading the Washington Post more or something else? We don't pretend to know how to do this (laughs) better than everybody else who's out in the world trying to make change, but we are willing to use our human resources and our time to do it with our constituency, which is social change makers, and learn together. I think that's, that's, a key principle of ours another thing we're going to be doing is conceptualizing narrative organizing so narrative is not something you want to impose on people like after doing after having you know some set of sheltered wealthy folks run a bunch of polls you want to build narrative and it's and the strategy for getting there with the people whose narrative it is and who are going to be affected by how that narrative gets taken up or not. So we're experimenting with different cohorts of organizations in the country to figure out what strategies we might take up. For example, I'm almost hesitant to put this out, but because it's so early stage, but We're talking to a bunch of Asian American organizations to see if this is a moment where we could replace the model minority impression and image with something authentic and real and that we shape and choose. Is it, I think it's the best opening we've had since 1970, but we need to check. So the first step in checking will be to do a landscape and some historicizing, how did the model minority myth come to be? Who were the players in that? What were the institutional interests in creating it? How did Asian Americans ourselves contribute to it? How do we benefit from it now? And what do we lose? All of that thinking has to be done. And maybe it'll turn out to be a moment to start a 20-year campaign to replace that characterization of our communities with reality, or maybe it won't. Maybe it'll turn out this is not that moment and we should focus on other things, in which case we'll do our landscape and assessment and we'll leave it to the next set of people who are inclined to try that. Those are the kinds of projects and activities we think about. It's so interesting. You, The
0: model minority is a good example. I doubt that some wordsmith sat down and, and said, okay, how do we demonize or how do we fracture the Asian community with this myth? But sometimes narrative something that, that kind of grows out of either preconceived notions or prejudices or quite the opposite, something that you – know, some kind of shared – value. And I was just looking at something that Race Forward, the organization that you ran for quite some time, put out, where which, which they said they conducted research that shows that the term systemic racism was used more times in the media after the murder of George Floyd than in the 30 years combined before that. So there's this thing that exists inside us, an understanding of something that pops when sometimes an event helped capture a moment in which a narrative emerged or flourished or use whatever your word you want to okay. say how do you think about the marriage of that this understanding that events shape us and that there are ways to pull it together into something that people can understand and rally around and connect with that these things kind of are they go hand in hand or that they can mm-hmm. they can exist in relationship to each other
2: Part of the reason that systemic racism could take off in as a term that would saturate all media and conversation after George Floyd's murder was because for the 20 years before that murder, there had been organizations both working on other m- police murders of Black people and also moving a, joint, a collective analysis forward about why that happens. That's the analysis of systemic racism. So, if, if the phrase systemic racism had not been used by Race Forward, Policy Link, um, the Haas Institute, the Kerwin Institute, the Aspen Institute, lots and lots of scholars teaching college courses, If that hadn't been happening in the valley periods between movement peaks, then the um, framing of what our country was dealing with in the aftermath of Mr. Floyd's murder would not have been systemic racism, would have been something else like one bad apple or, and in fact, it would have been the something else's that we've dealt with before. I mean, I was in California both w- when the Rodney King tape came out and when the acquittal of those police officers happened and systemic racism wasn't that that was not a moment that put systemic racism squarely into coverage afterwards. That so the third the all of the building that's happened in the last 30 years made the post-George Floyd moment really different from the post-Rodney King moment. Well,
0: you've actually, all these lights went off or on, whatever lights do in your head when you learn something. But the, this notion that the time that we spend thinking and analyzing and doing research and and getting deep into how we use language and what things mean is what you have to have at the ready to take advantage or to be responsive to things that are outside of your control. Mm -hmm. And it makes it feel like that's the essential work of the narrative initiative and other organizations like that, which is what you're doing. You're sharing information. You are conducting research in certain instances. And then even to the extent that you are supporting directly organizations that are attempting to Communicate, tell stories, and and help shape mm-hmm. a narrative. That that's the work we just have to be doing. You can never mm-hmm. rest. And I just really appreciate you for what you do and, and your great story. Um, I, I just thank you so much, Rinku, for for joining us and talking thank about your you. work.
2: Yeah, thanks for including
0: me. Well, Rinku Sen, the executive director of the Narrative Initiative. Thanks again for coming on.
1: And we're back. Eric, you get to do all the cool stuff. You get to be <laughs> on the advisory board of the narrative project.
0: Yeah, what a cool narrative initiative. The yeah, narrative right. initiative.
1: Sorry, That's okay. So, can we start there? Can you give me a little bit of the backstory? The narrative narrative initiative. Um, obviously, where did it come from? What's it, what is it about? And Rinku is relatively new to that role, right? Started yeah. towards the end of last year, I think. When right. that, when that all came together.
0: Nar- the narrative initiative started as a project of Ford Foundation and Atlantic Philanthropies, mm. who came together and said that we really need to have an institution, an organization that is focusing on narrative shift, particularly in the to advance social justice. Mm. So it was a it was a foundation started entity, and for the first several years, it operated like that. And as as the narrative initiative grew and kind of created itself and began as like all organizations, I'm sure you very well know, <laughs> Mr. Brown, uh, that an organization almost <laughs> takes on a life of its own, becomes its own <laughs> organism. And since that time, it is kind of expanding beyond its, its borders mm. of its original founders. And it is, so it's created its own, outside advisory board on which Mm. I serve and a number of really amazing other people uh, serve on it as well. And we had a transition in executive. And so Rinka came in earlier, wasn't earlier this year, I think, maybe I kind of, the time is a little fuzzy in my head, but recently uh, to take over this organization and to move it to the next place. And that's what it's doing. And what it is helping to do is to identify, opportunities for using narrative to advance the conversation primarily around race but mm. also around kind of a broader set of I would say nonprofit activities. it's so it's it's doing some of its own research. it's helping to share information broadly and it's a a place where people can learn about how do I think about what even what narrative is mm. we've had this conversation on this show for almost three years, yeah. What the heck is narrative? How do you shift it? Why do you shift it? All that other stuff, and they're contemplating that as well from a, a period from a place of real expertise.
1: I can't imagine a leader better suited to that task than Rinku. It's and and again, I, I know you probably weren't in the search process, but having Rinku walk into the room, start talking about background experience, perspective how do you how do you let that person get out of the room without saying, "Hey, when can you start?" You know, I mean, it's just just. <laughs> what the background that she brings to it. Um, now, tell me a little bit about Race Forward because, you know, as the jumping off point for what Rink is bringing to the Narrative Initiative, um, that campaign did such seminal work, including, you know, the Drop the I-Word campaign, which when you start changing media practice at major outlets, you know, and they stop referring to immigrants as illegal, let's say, you know, and you take that language out of the lexicon of, you know, Mainstream and 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 seminal media outlets, you've really changed the conversation around issues in 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 the, in the country. So, uh, you know, r- tell me a little bit about the process of just getting to you know, Rinku and and seeing her get situated in in, in, in her work.
0: Because Rinku is so creative, hmm. the process has been to be in the room when she begins to help us all understand how do you how do you take this organization and actually kind of move it out. And she just has a million great ideas Mm. and she has this wonderful ability to put things into practice and to put things out there that work. For example, she talks about the the so-called ghostwriting project. (laughs) What they're doing is they're helping organizations communicate literally, which is, you know, we come in, we'll help you, we'll teach you, we'll support your work and help you learn how to talk about, these issues in ways that matter and that are effective. And that's <laughs> as as specific and clear as it gets. Yeah. And this is something that Rinku has been doing over time, and she brought that into the narrative initiative. So that's been a really cool way to provide a lot of support to organizations that don't have a lot of wordsmiths on, yeah. on staff, what they have are activists who care. And yeah. you take that kind of passion and you marry it with great ways to describe and articulate this work and you end up with a really powerful set of activities so that's that's just one example of the kind of thing that that rinko brings to this and she's just amazingly creative she's i don't know she probably doesn't sleep uh, she she's she gets <laughs> she's doing all this stuff it's really amazing she, she's written a couple of books she's yeah. like speaks and all that other stuff so yeah. yes you are quite right that that uh to get Rinku was an incredible coup for the narrative initiative.
1: Well, and the uh, the academic background as a BA in women's studies from Brown and then an MS in journalism from from Columbia. So once again, we see the um, seeds of somebody with that journalism background coming into the advocacy space. But I was almost convinced we were going to see intellectual history somewhere in the background because, you know, this idea mm-hmm. that the Reagan administration is set setting us up for what we're dealing with today. You know, these things stretch out over the arc of, of decades and generations um, that we need to. And for
0: those of us who remember those eight miserable years Oof. and everything that was wrought afterwards, uh, I think she's exactly right.
1: Well, right. And then, you know, that grounding and engaging people on ideas. You know, we've got to engage people in in these ideas and how transformative they are. And then we get into the tactical part of this, how we turn ideas and issues into story. And part of that process is you've got to stop writing a nonprofit speak. And, of course, we stand (laughs) in attention when Ricky starts talking about that and translate ideas into language most people use. And I have to say, Mm. you know, this is – why do I like that idea? Well, but then, you know, it's it just, you have all these reminders. We have this brutally horrible last four years at the national level. And yet of all the things you could say about the person at the center of that, the one thing that person could do was translate these, frankly, awful ideas, but put them into just this plain language. And I just, I hate seeing it mirrored to us um, always from the negative side, you know, as opposed to carried by the by the more progressive and social change oriented Perspective. And it just seems like Rinku here, you know, Rinku can lead that charge, right, and help and help move this conversation forward. Because I just love that whole discussion, you know, where she was talking about just the, the rationalism in our field, you know, and just kind of where right. we come from on this stuff. I mean, what do you think
0: about that? I think yeah, this is interesting because I was, I think that the the, the we and I use the we with the yeah. the, the largest capital W uh, you can think of, which is our field, and yeah. you can define our our hour any way you like but mm. we want to seem smart <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> i think that that is our achilles heel we just yeah. want to seem smart
1: yeah and yeah.
0: seeming smart is better than getting than being effective mm-hmm. and we've heard this a trillion times where somebody in your you know the program department is like, oh you're dumbing it down and by that means by that they're saying you are making me not look as smart as i want to look mm. and that i don't know whether it's ego, whether it's, I don't know what Mm -hmm. is crushing. Yeah. And what we want to do is to communicate and they didn't call Reagan, the great communicator for nothing. Yeah. And nobody thought he was smart, but what he did was he reshaped American culture, science, the weather, you name it. sociology, religion, pick everything under the sun for, for two generations. Right. Right. And I mean that's a bit of an overstatement, but he, the, he put a lot of that stuff in motion, yeah. and undoing it is very, very hard. And he didn't care if people didn't think he was smart. In fact, he probably even kind of thought it was fun.
1: Well, you know, Whether I, he was
0: smart or not doesn't matter. But he right. didn't care. He didn't want to look smart. You know, he just said stuff that people somehow communicated with. And hey, look, I have some of my mm, brethren and sister voted for Reagan. Mm. Once upon a time, they were young. It was their first election, and they were like, ah, he seems kind of nice. I, I kind of like him. And and I know you're out there, um, and I won't name names, but still, uh, I, I for the record, I my first election, I voted for from I worked for Montdale. but that that doesn't mean anything at all. Yeah. So that's that's my long, 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 long rant on why we have to communicate in ways that can speak to people's values and we have to stop caring whether or not we look smart.
1: Well, isn't that interesting? It's an, it's an illustration of the dynamic she describes where we're trying to change power, power dynamics, asserting power prompts an irrational response, you know, so you can trigger fear, et cetera. And it, it is right. interesting. We see that in the fields we're trying to affect, but we also see that within our own field, because when we start coming off this very irrational approach, we're about strategy, we're about the numbers, we've got the spreadsheet and we can articulate it in this incredibly nuanced and thoughtful and sharp and precise way. All the time we're doing that, we're draining power from our field. We're draining mm-hmm. resonance from our field. And so what does Rinku do? She comes in and she says, we're gonna use narrative to advance power, You know, and right. we're gonna have a strategy and we're gonna recharacterize people and unify around values and, and show people how they fit into the this path, the right thing to do, she said it. Um, What a profound, I mean, what a great opportunity and and, and just what the right person in the right place for it. Um, I loved your reflection about the systemic racism use and how after, you know, George Floyd's murder, that phrase explodes in use. And Rinku's reflection that, yeah, you know, that happens because not just because of the incident around uh, Mr. Floyd, but also the 20 years of work setting the stage, you know, the 20 years of work trying to ensure that that language had um, rigor behind it. And there was analysis. And so when the moment we don't know when the moment's going to come and unfortunately too often it's catalyzed by tragedy, these horrible unthinkable um, tragedies, but the moment sets the stage for all of that work to come forward. I honestly, I just thought that was such a great reflection and, and and in a testament to the importance of something like the, the narrative initiative,
0: yeah, you're totally right. And by the way, I'm not saying that all you need to do is communicate. All needless to say, you have to have if you have research about what works. If you have done the organizing, if you have done the build the power building with people, all that has to happen. And as Rinko has, you know, really well described, that you have to be working all along, waiting for these opportunities to use. To, to help use narrative to to move issues now this is we did not get into the conversation about critical race theory which i mm. wanted to but we were just running out of time mm. and we'll find it in some other opportunity somewhere else mm. but the idea that now the right which has seen systemic racism take over now they're they're trying to to flip that right. with this notion that critical race theory which just teaches people that systemic racism has had a pernicious effect on our society and that it is that our system is based on a, a, a set of racist institutions and, and individuals that and, and that needs to be redressed they're saying that that is its own kind of racist they're, they're trying to create right. a counter narrative to that right. and th- this is why the, the right however you want to define right. them has been so effective with language yeah. and and framing over these years That they can take something as true as the fact that systemic racism has screwed up our country and has been, you know, deeply, deeply uh, had this pernicious effect, you know, violently pernicious effect on our lives uh, and say that that's somehow wrong. So that so that you just have to constantly be ready for this stuff. Yeah. And I, I wanted to have that conversation. We'll 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 find somebody to to have that conversation with, because it's really important. I didn't do it justice, but I know that there is much, much to be said and learned from what is happening around this de- so-called debate right. around critical race theory. Yeah.
1: No, well, it's absolutely worth unpacking. We'll come back to it for sure. Um, and, you know, actually it speaks to even that capacity of the, of the air quotes, right? And not even the right word for it any longer, I don't think, but you know, to sort of jump on something in such a unified way. You know, again, you know, Ronald Reagan was created by Barry Goldwater. You know, so so this right. notion yeah, yeah. of all the work that goes into yeah. setting the stage and there's a lot to learn from, you know, what's been done in different quarters. But but the the last thing I think the worth just reflecting on is this idea of in between the peaks, you know, these movement moments, we do the mundane work. We've got we're in the valleys and actually the real changes in the in the mundane work that's happening to set up ourselves for taking it, you know, just moving forward and the, when the opportunity arises. And, um, and I think a lot of what you're talking about, Eric, in terms of all that spade work that happens, yes, it's necessary, but also let's not forget that there's communications that goes through all of it, right? It's never not communication. Right. It's just some other language we're putting on the notion of this is, this is a way we're communicating. And, um, it, it and, and so again, that something like the narrative initiative brings us back to that and brings us all the way from the the strategy through the tactical piece to creating the, The rigor to hold these initiatives and i can't wait to see how um (laughs) the the minority myth uh (laughs) projects works through you know replacing that that and i'm so appreciative that rinku was able to share a little bit about you know some of those just groundbreaking initiatives that are just coming together now so well obviously there's always a lot to talk about and there's more that we'll come back to here for sure but i think for now it's enough to say man eric what a treat. And Rinku, thank you so much for joining Let's Hear It. That
0: was a conversation well worth listening to. That's for sure. Uh, and then one, I, as we close out, I just wanted to make another little uh, uh, a thank you, a deep and abiding thank you to the intrepid Maggie Brown. The intrepid Maggie
1: Brown, yes. You,
0: you know that the intrepid Maggie Brown plays a, a huge role in this, this show. Um, they are the producer, our audio engineer, editor, they do the social media, they post the shows, they do pretty much everything. And they are moving to Japan to teach English. And the Intrepid Maggie Brown is my offspring. (laughs) I I could not be more proud and excited for them because they're off on a great adventure. And (laughs) if if anyone out there wants to be our audio engineer (laughs) and be our Intrepid, whomever you are, give us a call. Yeah. But uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Maggie Brown.
1: Yeah, they really helped us. And Maggie is a colleague, a coworker of mine. And Maggie brought a ton of grace, intelligence, expertise, and tenacity to the work that they were working on with us um, at reach too. So not just on the podcast, but on a number of other issues too. So Maggie Brown, thank you. Thank you. We will miss you. And uh, I keep, uh, Mr. Brown encouraging Maggie to not leave "Let's Hear It" behind <laughs> when they go to Japan, but I don't think it's—I don't think it's succeeding. <laughs> uh,
0: what an exciting adventure ahead!
1: Well, thank you, Maggie. Thank you, Rinku. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Um, what a great uh, conversation! And yes, if you're a top-notch audio engineer, we'd love to hear from you. Let's hear it.
0: <laughs> Thanks, everybody. See you next time.
1: See you next time. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. We'd like to thank
0: Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator,
1: John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music.
0: We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at Heinz.org slash podcast.
0: We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown?
1: <laughs> no, no. Thank <laughs> you, Mr. Brown.
0: Till next time.
1: Let's hear it.